You're listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian. I'm here uh, with, a, with an interview live in person. So we're not doing this over a Zoom call. We actually have uh, flesh and blood right here. Uh, a great guest, Dr. Scott Swain. He's the president of RTS Orlando, Reformed Theological Seminary Orlando. That's where I went, to, I went to seminary. And he's the James Woodrow Harrell Professor of Systematic Theology. He's a really important guy. That's basically what we're trying to say. But uh, Dr. Swain, thank you for being here with Thanks us. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, you're here because you, uh, you were speaking at uh, one of the uh, congregations in our, in our church at our, uh, for our Theology and Practice event, which is something that Four Oaks does, uh, talking about different theological topics. And uh, you came to talk about what you do best and talk about best, the Trinity, which is no small thing. And uh, it was a great session. If you want to check out those sessions, they're actually going to be posted online. Uh, there's two sessions he did and then a great Q&A. So uh, if you have more questions after this podcast, make sure you check those out and we'll put those in the show, show notes. But uh, it was an excellent uh, time. It was, I think people were served well by it. And uh, one of the things that I loved when I took your class, I took it distance, you know, the hybrid program, but uh, it was an eye-opening moment taking systematics from you, especially on the Trinity, because I remember thinking, man, I thought a lot about Calvinism. <laughs> you know, I thought a lot about election and predestination, but I haven't really thought about God. Mm. And that's what theology is about. Yeah. And the actual being of God and particularly the Trinity. And so, when I took your class, I was, it was really a paradigm shift for me in a lot of ways, um, realizing what the Trinity means, how we articulate it, how you find it exegetically through the scriptures. And uh, so I was really appreciative of that. I actually, when I was, I was listening to the lectures, you know, uh, on the RTS app, and uh, I was at a gas station and this Jehovah's Witness woman came up to me to talk to me. And I was like, <laughs> I'm ready for this. Like I'm, I'm ready, <laughs> you know, but, um, anyway, I appreciate you being on the podcast. Uh, your work dealing with the Trinity has been very helpful. And I'm curious, how, how did you get interested in making that something you wanted to focus on studying the Trinity, Trinitarian theology? What kind of got you interested in that uh, domain of, of theology? Yeah. Um, I, I think a couple of main influences pushed me in that direction. First one would have been uh, when I started seminary. Uh, the very first class I took was a church history class. And um, I was raised in a church where I was uh, taught a lot of the Bible and, and very grateful for that. But I did not have um, as solid a grounding in church history and in the history of doctrine. And so uh, in this first church history class, one of the texts we read was Athanasius on the Incarnation. And uh, the prof lectured on Arian controversy, the Nicene Creed, and so forth. And I really was captivated by um, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, through that class. And so I think that's one of the, the main influences. And then as I got into my doctoral program uh, in the late 90s, one of the big controversies was open theism. So mm. a view that says God doesn't know the future and, and that's the way that he has restricted himself so that we could have free will. And while that wasn't a topic that I necessarily wanted to do much research on, um, it, it did highlight the importance to me of having a sound understanding of the doctrine of God. And so that kind of, I think, pushed me um, further into kind of making the Doctrine of the Trinity one of my primary areas of research. Well, one of the things that you've done is I think you've made understanding the Trinity something that's accessible to people. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you've written a kind of a, a popular level book uh, introducing the Trinity. And when you started studying these things, I mean, you probably saw a lot of you know, talk about the Trinity on an academic level, but what, how, how would you describe, talk about the Trinity on like a, a modern evangelical level, how people kind of understand it, ways that you see that being talked about, or maybe not really talked about much at all. Yeah. Yeah. Church. That's, 
You know, I think there's a there's a tendency to get excited about things in theology that we deem of having kind of direct practical relevance. And and that's fine. Um, you know, we know ourselves as sinners. So having an understanding of of the atonement and how our sins can be forgiven, that that has existential importance to us. Sure. Um, understanding you know, our relationships in marriage and, and so forth, uh, that, that can excite us for studying theological anthropology. And unfortunately, I think what sometimes can happen is, ironically, theology is teaching concerning God. Right. Theos, logos, right. Right. Um, but ironically, we can sometimes only bring God into it insofar as we can kind of figure out where is God relevant to maybe the forgiveness of my sins or my yeah. relationship with my spouse. And I think that a lot of modern evangelical teaching on God has kind of fallen into maybe that trap of not thinking that God is interesting in his own right to, to know, to love, to, to study, um, but only insofar as we can demonstrate God's relevance. Um, and, and again, again, while that's an understandable impulse, um, it's not without its dangers. And I would argue it's not without kind of missing the point. Um, Augustine says, you've made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless. Do they find the rest in you? Which means that the most practical thing we could ever do is actually know God, not just in terms of his relevance to us, but in terms of who he is. That's really helpful. I mean, I, I remember it kind of dawned on me where I'm like, why, why is it matter that I'm forgiven for my sins? Or why does it matter that, you know, Christ came to die for me and ultimately it's to bring me to God. Right. I remember when we, uh, we, we had an interview with, uh, with Mike Allen, Dr. Mike Allen, yes. and, uh, who's at, who's at Orlando. And, uh, he had a great comment about how we can often, um, love the gift and miss the giver. Yeah. And just thinking about, and I, th I think about even in just, a lot of churches, it's like Jesus, if, you know, you could be addicted to drugs, Jesus can change your life. Right. You can feel guilty and Jesus can remove that guilt. Yeah. And all those things are true, but it's almost like you're not, you're not going far enough to like the object of our actual need or, or the source of our actual need with, 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 with God yeah. himself. Yeah. The, the way, um, the way I, I, I might make the point is we have a Jesus who meets expectations. In other words, he, he answers the questions we're asking, and, and we don't fully attend to the fact that the Jesus of the Bible actually exceeds expectations, um, yeah. raises questions we've never even thought about asking. Yeah, um, yeah that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it, I think it challenged me in a lot of ways, and I think hopefully people reading your book and listening to these sessions felt that challenge. Uh, one of the things you spoke about, and uh, you, you talk about this in your, in your books, your lectures, uh, is this idea about fluency mm. when we talk about the Trinity. And, uh, you know, I think there's so many Trinity illustrations that maybe don't, you know, if you take them too far, it confuses people and all that stuff. And then, so I think people have this sense of like, well, I don't know. I just, I just know that it is. And I, it's just something that we just put a check mark on. Um, but this idea of fluency rather than, I think you've worded it, uh, rather than proficiency, proficiency or mastery over the Trinity, a fluency in it. What, mm -hmm. what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that sometimes scares us when we come to the Trinity is we, we know that it's a very important doctrine and we want to have the right uh, doctrine, uh, but we also know that it's very hard to understand. We, we face God's incomprehensibility really in a profound way when we think about the doctrine of the Trinity. And so when I make the distinction between proficiency and mastery versus fluency, it's a way of trying to, in a sense, lower of expectations of, of what we can accomplish in this study. Um, know that the goal is not to know God as God knows himself. Uh, no one knows the Father but the Son. No one knows the Son but the Father, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. There's a unique divine self-knowledge that we will never attain, but we can, while we can't gain proficiency, we can't gain mastery, we can gain 
fluency and the way that a child can learn to sing a tune before she knows any of the scales or notes or how to read music. She can follow the tune. She can she can actually sing the right tune, not the yeah. wrong tune. Right. And we can gain that kind of fluency, I think, on the Doctrine of the Trinity as well. What are some ways, what's the vocabulary that we need to gain that kind of fluency? Yeah, so I mean, the, the main vocabulary is what scripture gives us, or then secondarily, uh, we can use words that aren't in scripture, but words that help us make sense of scripture's meaning. And that's been the general kind of rule that you've seen among Orthodox Christians. We want to primarily use scriptural words. So Jesus commands us to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those are the three primary names for the persons of the Trinity that we use, one God and three persons. Uh, but then there are other terms that have come in. So the Nicene Creed, consubstantial. Uh, we say the Son is consubstantial with the Father, where the term consubstantial is not in the Bible. But we do believe the Bible teaches that the Son is one God with the Father. Well, to say that the Son is one God with the Father is what consubstantiality is all about. We don't right. have two gods or three gods. We have one God and three persons. And so emphasize biblical terminology and, and more importantly, the way the Bible uses its terms. And then secondarily, we can use other terms that are outside of the Bible that help us make sense of what the Bible is actually saying. Uh, the, there's a, a common thing you see in the Arian controversy in the fourth century where some who did not want to affirm the full deity of the Son insisted upon not using extra biblical terms. Hmm. And uh, the response from the Orthodox was, well, you're actually trying to hide unbiblical interpretations under biblical terms. We're using extra biblical terms in order to make a biblical point. Huh. And um, I think that's a helpful observation. When you talk about the church history controversies, and uh, that was something that was, I was very ignorant of until I, I came to RTS and learned about what the church fought over and gave their lives for because it was so critical. And I think in my mind, I was like, well, they're, aren't they both looking at the same scriptures? Mm. And isn't this, is this just a power play? One, one team, you know, got, got to win over the other team that had a different interpretation using the same scriptures. Um, but is that a fair way of looking at it? I mean, were they, uh, wh why were the Arians so convinced of their... Yeah, this is kind of like the Da Vinci Code view of church history, which is <laughs> very popular it, yeah. out there. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah, the the way you explain the formation of the canon, or the way you explain, uh, you know, how decisions were made about orthodoxy versus heresy, is that it's all just power plays, right, all mm. the way down. Um, but of course, that's a simplistic. Uh, understanding of the history, and you have to, in, in many regards, ignore the history. There are many times where the, the Orthodox were not in power. Uh, there's a very significant period after the Nicene Creed where uh, the Orthodox were, were actually not in power. And, and uh, it's during this time that you actually have some of the, the seeds being sown uh, for what will eventually emerge with, for example, Three theologians are sometimes called the Cappadocian Fathers. Uh, and their teaching uh, will be so influential in the Council of Constantinople when Orthodoxy does gain uh, preeminence again in the, in the ancient world. But, but this is, again, this is not a matter about these guys had all the power. Um, it actually was the time of not being in power where you have some of the most formative influence on Orthodox Trinitarian teaching. And so, you know, what I think is, is a better understanding of what's going on there is you have debates about how to read the Bible, how to understand the nature of salvation and how to worship God. And this is true of the start of the Arian controversy. It begins basically in debates about how to interpret Proverbs 8 and specifically 
uh, how to understand the identity of wisdom yeah, speaks right, right, right. In, in Proverbs 8. And uh, what I would argue is that orthodoxy is about taking into account everything that the Bible says about the Son, whereas heresy is a matter of kind of picking and choosing some things that the Bible says, but not others. And if you look at um, Athanasius of Alexandria, Cappadocians who I've mentioned already, this is a very common critique they make of those who deny the Son's full identity. He says, yes, you're right to see these creaturely characteristics being ascribed to the Son in Scripture, mm -hmm. but Scripture says more than that. Sure. And so um, orthodoxy is about trying to take the whole counsel of God into account. That's really helpful. I, one of the things I appreciate about your approach was it was very exegetical. I mean, you, you went through John 5 and John 12 and, and you know, Matthew 28, and you were basically just saying, if we put all these together, a Trinitarian theology emerges, even if the authors aren't saying Trinity. Yeah. And uh, because I think sometimes when we talk about the Trinity, and I, I know maybe in current debates, the idea, the perception is it's people constructed this philosophical system yeah. about beings and persons and then just stuffed it into the words of the Bible. Right. But it actually, from the way you explain it, it's like this actually emerges out of it. And we're trying to just put language to, to kind of put it together. Yeah. No ancient philosopher, um, no Neoplatonist, kind of in the, in the time of the Council of Nicaea or Constantinople, no philosopher would have dreamed of proposing the doctrine of the Trinity as a kind of solution to contemporary philosophical conundrums. That, mm. That's not what's driving um, the show. And in fact, there are philosophers who mock Christians for their Trinitarian teaching. Um, it's, 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 it's very clear, if you, if you, if you read the, the history of the debates, it's the interpretation of Scripture. It's the ancient practice of baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that is putting pressure on the church. It's mm. not a philosophical pressure. It's a scriptural and, if you will, a sacramental pressure that's being put on the church to confess God in this way. And they use philosophy, um, but there's a sense in which you actually have to kind of put philosophy to new use to speak sure. well of God. It's It's not a... It's not a use that philosophy kind of uh, originally lends itself to. Well, you had mentioned some of your influences like Calvin and mm. Thomas Aquinas and, and, and Augustine. And, and it seems like these guys, this is what they, this was just what they believed. This is what they understood. And they had a strong Trinitarian doctrine. Yeah. And uh, so this is part of the Reformed heritage. It's part of Absolutely. our Christian heritage. Um, and when you talk about using, you were saying like using philosophical ways to understand what the scripture says. Um, it seems like in the past century, people have been trying that project to varying ends. And uh, you had mentioned a, a phrase, uh, social Trinitarianism. Mm. I've, I've heard that in passing, but um, I'm not a hundred percent. What, what, what is the essence of that? Was that a project in trying to take philosophy and trying to make sense using using modern tools to better articulate what Scripture says? Or, um, yeah, I mean, there's 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 philosophy in social trinitarianism, and there's use of philosophy in almost any sophisticated treatment of the Trinity. It's it's almost impossible to think about God without philosophy. But uh, social trinitarianism is a late 20th century phenomenon where there was kind of a, in the middle of the 20th century, through the influence of theologians like Karl Rahner and Karl Barth, there was a sense that the church had lost touch with its Trinitarian theology, that the church had perhaps become mere monotheist rather than Trinitarian monotheist. And, and so there was a kind of renewal in modern academic theology of reflection on the Trinity. Well, social Trinitarianism was kind of a second generation of that attempt to renew the church's mind. Um, but there was kind of built into social Trinitarianism 
this idea that the reason the church stopped being Trinitarian was because its historical doctrine really held the seeds of the doctrine of Trinity's undoing. It really was just a kind of overly monotheistic doctrine. And Augustine is, is kind of criticized for this, and Thomas Aquinas is criticized for this. And so what, what the social Trinitarian focus is, no, we need to emphasize more fully the distinction among the persons. And, and it's called social because uh, a couple of reasons. One, there's the idea that the three persons are three distinct centers of consciousness with three distinct wills, and they relate to mm. each other uh, by free choice and so forth. And then the second uh, reason we, we might call it social Trinitarianism is because the idea is, and there's a kind of direct correspondence between the way the persons relate to each other and the way we should relate to each other. So you have social Trinitarian manifestos written on not only how to do the church in the way that images the Trinity, but how to do politics in a way that images the Trinity, how to do marriage in a way that images the Trinity. Yeah. And this is where you started getting into evangelical debates of sure. the late 20th century, uh, because both those who were trying to argue for a sort of traditional understand understanding of husband-wife relationships um, as opposed to a more egalitarian understanding of husband and wife relationship, both groups tried to model their arguments I on see. a kind of social Trinitarian model. Right, right. Um, and so uh, now Stephen Holmes has written a book called The Quest for the Trinity, and he has argued, I think, quite convincingly that the problem with social Trinit Trinitarianism is that at the end of the day, it's really not the historic doctrine of the Trinity. Sure. So it's not really a renewal. Right, right. It's a changing of it. It's, yeah. it's a revision. Yeah. yeah. So why do you think this happened in the, was this like a 19th, 19th, 20th century kind of, what, why do you think that suddenly people wanted to emphasize the distinction? Whereas before it didn't seem like there was as much trying to reformulate how we understand the Trinity. Well, I, I think part of it is at least in kind of reformed and evangelical worlds comes from an impulse that we talked about, you know, at the beginning of talking about doctrine only insofar as we can talk about its immediate relevance. And yeah. if, if you're wanting to bring the Trinity in, then, well, we got to make, we got to talk about its relevance to marriage relationships and, right. and so forth. And so, it was not an interest in the Trinity for the Trinity's own sake. It was an interest in the Trinity for the sake of something else, um, which I think is, uh, it's not that the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't have relevance, but if we define it only in terms of its relevance, then we are getting into deep trouble. Well, that, that kind of touches on, you mentioned in like the conservative form evangelical world, there was the big uh, EFS, ESS, the eternal functional subordination of the son, the eternal, the, 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 what's the ESS? That would be etern the eternal, eternal subordination, subordination of the son. Of the son yeah. yeah. And uh, that was the first, I mean, I was in seminary while that was going on. And so it was like learning about this stuff and then realizing, oh, people are really, people within the same camp are really divided over this. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear like, what was your take on on that situation? What was your experience of that situation? And then since then, what are your reflections on that debate? And I, maybe you can even explain in a succinct way what what is the fundamental debate about EFS ESS? About? Yeah. So fundamentally, if, if you think about eternal functional subordination of the Son, this was a way of talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son, and it was a way of distinguishing the persons. And the way to distinguish them was to say that the father has authority over the son, the son submits to the father. And you could see how this was, you know, used in a certain kind of uh, discussion about husband and wife relations. So Ephesians 5, husband is the head of the wife, wife called to submit to the husband. And so you can say, oh, see, the Trinity is the perfect model for equal persons where there is uh, disparate authority. Right. And the, part of the, the kind of origins for this 
go back to, I think, in some ways, B.B. Warfield, who never would have dreamed of espousing EFS. But uh, B.B. Warfield was very critical of the traditional way of distinguishing the persons. So the father eternally begets the son, the son is eternally begotten. And he argued that it's not necessary to kind of come up with a way of understanding their relationship to each other. Well, my own theory is that the mind abhors a vacuum. I see. And so these relations of authority and submission are kind of introduced to explain in the context where you're trying to make the Trinity relevant um, and so forth. Now, last five or six years, there's been a lot of um, very healthy critique of that impulse. There's been a lot of uh, good, healthy recovery of Orthodox teaching of the Trinity. And so I think that Reformed evangelical circles, we're in a lot better position than we were um, even five years ago. But there's, there's a lot of work to be done. And if I had to kind of name what my contemporary worry is, um, and this is often the case in the history of doctrine, is that we sometimes react to one error by swinging to the equal and opposite error. Mm. Um, but the opposite of an error is not truth. Right. It's just the opposite right. error. Right. And I do think there's, out of a desire to kind of honor divine simplicity, out of an effort to honor the, the unity of the persons as one God, um, I, th I think that there's a hesitance in some circles to be able to say some things that scripture plainly says, like the father loves the son. And that that is a statement that refers not just to the relationship between the first person and the second person, let's say in his incarnate state, but that God's eternal life is a life of love between the father, the son in the fellowship of the spirit, and that this does not imply three wills in God, uh, that this doesn't imply three centers of consciousness, uh, but that the reality of God transcends, uh, you know, what we were able to, to put into words. And, and, and so, uh, while we can't fully say what that means, I think we're on solid ground uh, with scripture preeminently, but also with the tradition of, of saying those kinds of things. And if you look at Augustine, he has no problem saying that. If you look at Athen, uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas, he's got no problem saying that. Uh, Reformed tradition has no problem saying that as well. Um, so it, it's important not to overcorrect. What would be the, uh, if, they're, if they're trying to preserve the oneness of God, would they be saying, you say God loves the son, you're- You're implying two different wills or something, or you're right. dividing the persons. But if the, God, if the father has authority over the son, that's a different- Well, because, yeah, by definition, uh, authority and submission implies two different wills, right? Right. And uh, Love, by definition, does not imply two different wills. So we, we talk about self-love, right? Right, I see. Um, so think about Ephesians 5, even on the human level. Husbands, love your wives. Why? No one hates his own flesh. Hmm. Look at the analogy there. Where one person is being commanded to love another person, but the, the kind of model for that is self-love one person's love of his own body yeah uh, and of course the point is through marriage the, the couple become one flesh and so you can make that kind of analogy so love does not imply the existence of two wills and the way that authority and submission implies the existence of two wills that's a really helpful distinction and and, and the more i think about this and i'm i'm I probably and maybe the product of kind of the neo-reform neo-calvinist movement i mean that's you know when everything was blown up and churches being planted everyone's getting saved mm -hmm, and these these mm -hmm. sort of reformed uh, neo-calvinist camps where we had a really strong doctrine of like complementarity like mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. the home and like men yep. leading and all that stuff and it was developed and it was thought through and all this stuff but we didn't have a strong i didn't really learn a lot about like the nature of god and yep. the Trinity. And it's almost like one was really developed and it kind of overshadowed the other. Yep. And that's probably not the way that it should happen. No, <laughs> it that, should that's happen. why systematic theology is important because we want to, you know, not just care about one doctrine, we want to care about all doctrines, but then we want to, 
We want to understand them in their proper relations and proportions to each other. And scripture teaches us how to think about various doctrines in their proper relations. So we don't want to have a kind of a, a robust theological anthropology, but an atrophied doctrine of God. Sure. Um, in a sense, you can't have a robust theological anthropology unless you've got a robust doctrine of God. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's kind of a, a common thing that happens. But I do think there's been some good correction and hopefully balance restored. Well, it's also helpful, like, in some of the work you do, retrieving a lot of the resources we had before the Reformation. Yeah. And you talk about the Cappadocian Fathers and, and people who... I think in my mind, I had a knee-jerk reaction, like, well, they're all Catholic or, mm. or you know, and, and, and there's almost this kind of idea of like, well, no, I mean, the reformers had this lineage of classic, the they, they, they had this strong doctrine and, yeah. and they almost assumed it or they, they built, uh, built off of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so Martin Luther says in his small called articles, he says, when it comes to the articles of majesty, and by that, he means the doctrine of God and the Trinity and the doctrine of the person of Christ. He says, we, Protestants, have no debate with Rome. Wow. Luther said that. Luther says this. And he had some problems with Rome. And he had some real problems with yeah, Rome. Yeah, yeah. John Owen. Yeah. You know, you can't be more Protestant than John Owen. Yeah, yeah. John Owen, in one of his catechisms, says, when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, we have no disagreement with Rome. Hmm. And and you see people like uh, Vocius, uh, another great 17th century Reformed figure, uh, Petrus van Maastricht commonly actually recommend Roman Catholic writings on the Trinity and even on devotional literature related to mm. the Trinity because they're saying we don't disagree with them there. So it's kind of ironic that we have some contemporary Protestants yeah. who want to say if you want to be really Protestant, you need to re reform the doctrine of God. Well, no, actually, to be really Protestant is to agree with Rome on the doctrine of God. Right. <laughs> What an ironic And the other thing yeah. is to be a fake Protestant, okay, or yeah. something else altogether. Well, I wonder if it's too, because I think on a practical level, and maybe this, maybe even just asking the question on a practical level, <laughs> maybe kind of is part of the problem. But I'm just thinking about like lay people when we when we talk about um, eternal generation of the Son, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that the Son is eternally begotten from the Father, and. How do you get a lay person to see that that's really important to understand that? Do you think that we should, you know, do, do people need to know about eternal regeneration or is there a way to present it that they don't have to know the exact terminology? How does fluency kind of work in with these? Yeah, yeah. Doctrines? So, um, Fred Sanders, he often will cite Gregory of Nazianzus on this point where Gregory says, uh, you know, affirming the doctrine of eternal generation is worth dying for. But if you try to explain it, he'll kill you. <laughs> and, and, and that's the kind of thing. It's, 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 it's absolutely important because what we're saying is that in God, there is a real father-son relation. That God's fatherly relationship to us is actually downstream from the eternal father's relationship to the eternal son. Hmm. Uh, that father is a real name of God. And so with the Nicene fathers, you have this kind of slogan almost, always father, always son. Hmm. Now, the way it, it, it kind of sometimes played out in early polemics, which I think is a way that helps us still appreciate its importance, is one criticism made of the Arian view is that, well, if God is not eternal father of an eternal son, then the Arian view is basically claiming that God only becomes productive when he creates the world. Hmm. And they say, but, but that view of God says that, you know, apart from creation, God is a dry well. Wow. He's an unfruitful tree. And what the Orthodox father says, no, actually God is more fruitful, and productive inside himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit than he is outside himself. And, and God's work of creating us and redeeming us and, and bringing the world to its consummation is actually uh, a faint replica of 
how internally productive and alive God is in his life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hmm. And so, um, you know, their argument, I think it's right that you to deny the Trinity, you're going to end up denying God's intrinsic perfection in some way. Uh, you're, right. you're going to kind of lower uh, our understanding of God uh, and, and, and suggest, well, when he relates to us as Father, that's just maybe play acting or something. It's not God being himself. Right. It's not God bringing us into uh, union and communion with him as he really is through his son and by his spirit. And then when you think about that, you're like, oh, man, it's like you were showed us, you know, this morning. It's all over John. Yeah. The idea of, of his unique sonship, but also how that that, that, that relationship is an a, a eternal thing that we enter into. And in not in the same way as Christ, but yeah, it, it kind of, you're like, oh, yeah, what does it mean to call God? A father. Mm-hmm. Well, you see that fatherness has been a part of who he's always been, and 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 the son has always had that relationship, and that does have a lot to it. And yeah, I mean, how did what, what were what are, what were the ancient thinkers? I mean, what do they have that allowed them to think so deeply about that? Whereas now we're 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 like revising it. Does that does that make sense? I mean, it seems like today we have all these new ideas trying to revise understanding the Trinity, but they seemed a little more settled maybe even more fluent themselves in yeah well i mean part of it is becoming gaining fluency in the trinity presupposes fluency in scripture and it comes back to the point i made earlier about kind of orthodoxy versus heresy yeah the orthodox are saying we got to take all the verses into account right right and so there is a kind of just a, a deep awareness of everything that scripture says about god i think there's also a you see this not just among Christians in the ancient world, but more broadly in the broader religious and philosophical culture, uh, the idea that you could have true worship without having a true understanding of God would have been preposterous. Whereas I think moderns, we think, well, worship, I mean, all that matters is that it feels authentic. Yeah. And if my ideas of God are wrong, that doesn't matter. The ancient world did not hold that view. Um, and so, and, and, and there's an idea, and there's also the idea that God is not a utilitarian being. Yeah. Right, that we, he's just there for us to use him. Right, right. That, no, God is an end in himself. And so knowing him truly um, is essential to realizing our highest good as, as creatures. And so I think there's more of a patience to, to avoid idolatry and to worship God truly. Uh, and, and unfortunately, that's not as prevalent in our modern Christian culture. That's a fascinating insight. They, I mean, they just had more time to think and meditate on it, perhaps. Well, they thought it was more important to take time. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I mean, we, I remember somebody... It was asking about the shack. Yeah. And that was kind of the big, you know, but you think about the shack and it's like, you know, they're, they're trying to use the Trinity to help somebody through profound grief. Right. And you can understand the impulse to that, but it's almost like you were saying where we want God to meet expectations. I have this grief. I have this need. I want God to fill it. But then you're like saying, well, actually, if you spend the time with it, mm-hmm. and you listen to the forefathers of the faith, he exceeds that. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and puts our suffering in a new context. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that made me think, and, and just from your own experience, because you're a church guy, you're you're a member of a local church, and, and you love the church. How have you seen the proper doctrine of the Trinity minister to people, or what kind of comfort does it give? You know, and maybe even on on like how has it changed how you minister to people or or, or care for people? Yeah, um, that's that's a great question. I mean, I I think in terms of my own Christian life, uh, you know, James one, which is about trial and and suffering, and uh, gives us a really strange exhortation: count it all joy when you fall into various trials and. It gives a number of different reasons to count it all joy when you fall into trial. And one is that 
God's doing something good through your trials. He's going to make you perfect and complete. So he's going to make you more like Christ. He's going to form your character. It says God's going to reward you at the conclusion of your trials. You're going to receive the crown of life. But then the really strongest argument for rejoicing, even in the midst of things that cause us great sorrow. So he's not saying, like, be happy all the time. He's not denying that these trials will cause us great pain. But he says, even in the midst of that, the, the ultimate reason we can rejoice in trials is that we know that everything that comes our way comes from the hand of the one he describes as the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow yeah. due to change. And, and that is a, while it's a statement about the first person of the Trinity primarily and his work through the Son and Spirit being the source of everything that's good, the unchanging source of all that's good, um, it does, I think, have something to do with the Trinity because um, the reason God is the father of all good things outside of God is because he's eternally father of his son in the spirit. And learning to relate to God as that father through trial, um, knowing that that father did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Therefore, he will give us all things. Uh, that's a source of, I think, deep consolation, um, even of being able to find purpose in, in suffering. Well, you can't get there without an orthodox view of God. Right. And so, yeah, it, it's the doctrine of God is, is not merely a relevant doctrine, but it is profoundly relevant um, if we'll let it shape our thinking and our living well i think it's the more you reflect on it you realize how critical it is i mean i could imagine you know a mormon saying oh yeah god is you know there for my trials and but they almost they almost meet it in a superficial way and if they really dug down to it it wouldn't have the like the profundity of thinking about well yeah and mormon eschatology you only need God in Mormon eschatology to to kind of, I guess, produce the circumstances where you're living on your planet with all your wives or whatever. Yeah. Um, whereas Christian eschatology doesn't make sense without God because God is the greatest blessing of Christian eschatology. Right. It's yeah. life with God, life in God's presence. Wow. He's not just a means to an end. He is the end. And you could even see that that can happen in evangelicalism unwittingly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. But uh, what about um? In terms of how can pastors preach more trinitarianly, if that makes sense. How can we bring that into the way that we we, we teach people and preach? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, Scripture is the primary guide. Um, learning to speak the way Scripture spe speaks about things. So, you know, Paul can summarize the gospel in Galatians 4 in a very Trinitarian way. At the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we we're sons, he sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Well, so getting in the habit of, of having a, trin a Trinitarian-shaped gospel. Um, but in our prayers, you know, praying to the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit, um, just having kind of good habits in that regard. Um, but I think one of the best ways is honestly, the, the church has a kind of treasure trove of um, ways of worshiping God as Trinity, the doxology, uh, the Gloria Patri, right? Uh, these are wonderful summaries of our doctrine that also are great guides to being Orthodox. Um, and so making these kind of central to our worship, I think, are, are, are very helpful ways of reinforcing sound Trinitarian theology. What, what about, um, you think about, how, how do you explain, you know, the Trinity to a kid? <laughs> you know, yeah. how, do you, how do you, you know, I think, uh, and we talked about this a little bit last night, but like, how do you go to your, you know, fourth grade or your, you know, a five-year-old Sunday school class and 
make this understandable to very young minds. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think this is where things like the doxology, Gloria Patri, um, these are helpful. You know, the the youngest child can sing these things and, and can have a lot of fun actually when they make little mistakes. Um, but also our catechisms. Hmm. Are, are a great resource for children in terms of just getting the ABCs of the doctrine. And what I found is, you know, sometimes worrying like, oh, I can't explain it to a child. So, you know, what am I going to do? Well, I can't explain it to adults. It's true. Yeah. Um, and I actually good point. found, um, you know, with our own kids, kids are okay with things being too hard to understand. Hmm. Sometimes kids are more okay with something being too hard to understand than adults are. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the Augustine, the thing, if you could understand it, it wouldn't be God. Yeah. Um, sometimes kids can, can, can really live with that. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just think we, you know, we, we catechize them. We, we, we teach them to pray. It's in the Lord's Prayer. We, we teach them to sing. And then we try to help them grow in their faith as we try to help all of God's people grow in their faith. It's reassuring to know that there's resources in, in the church tradition. Yeah. I mean, you can think about it. You're like, man, I, I got to write something. I wish someone smarter wrote. I wish actually a bunch of smarter people. Actually, I wish someone had written this and it's to the test of time. And then right. that you have the catechisms and the confessions yeah. and, and those tools that are there. Yeah. No, and, like, uh, you know, the Apostles' Creed. Kids could yeah. memorize the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. Yeah. And you, it's probably even rethinking how we think these things are formed in us, yeah. like that you have to be able to, that the kid has to be able to explain the mechanics of the Trinity, which, right. you know, we, right. <laughs> there's a mystery to that. Right. But just learning, they don't need to know all the fine points of grammar. And you've made right. this point to be able to speak, right. be able to sing, right. you know, to have some semblance of, of what we're talking about. Right. Um, that's a helpful thing. What, what about um, with regard to evangelism? This is something that's always mm -hmm. been in my mind where, trying to share the gospel with somebody and then they can, they can get like, okay, a person sacrificing themselves for me. I get that. And then like a God who loves me, like these are sort of categories that can be understood. But then it's like, Oh, by the way, you just, you just got to believe this one. It's one being eternally existent in three persons, yeah. you know, but, and, and, and you mentioned, I guess you could use Paul's language in explaining it, but even yeah. how, how do you make it, if, if, if it's central to the gospel, yeah. How do you communicate to somebody who doesn't have that church language if you're trying to yeah. share the gospel with them? Does that well, make sense? I think I think it varies from instance to instance. Sure. Right. And and again, there's this there's a kind of basic gospel grammar that will just, you know, make sure that we're not um saying that the father died for your sins or something like that. Right, right. Um but it's gonna be the challenges are going to be different for different people. If someone has been under the influence of well, Islam, for example, uh -huh. it's probably going to take more time where there's going to have to be more teaching on the front end before someone is willing to, you know, uh, confess Jesus as Lord. Um, for others, it might be they are able to receive it and only after becoming a Christian sort of start scratching their heads and asking questions, help me to better understand that. And so the, the instruction comes on the backside more than on the front side. Um, but I think it just, it kind of varies. Um, but there is a, you know, there is a faith involves knowledge. And so there is some, something that has to be affirmed when we believe the gospel. But even using, I guess, I love, yeah, when you use Paul's model, I mean, it's all there. You have the adoption, you have, yeah. And you could even, I guess, walk a new Christian or a, a, a curious kind of uh, non-believer. This is what this text is saying. And notice there's yeah. these three people yeah. and the way they relate. Yeah. And I guess you, you reach and you're like, yeah, it'll be for a future say, conversation. And, and, and we believe the only way you can come to accept this is that the Holy Spirit has to give you understanding. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, so why don't you ask the Father to give you a spirit of understanding? <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. Uh, how would you encourage... Uh, lay people on their own to grow in 
this fluency with the Trinity in Scripture? What are some ways they can begin to do that? Yeah, I, I think uh, the answer to all questions of the sort is starting with Scripture. Um, and I think even becoming aware with uh, kind of typical introductions to a Pauline letter, grace, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Why is he greeting us in the name of the Father and 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 of the Son? And then you say, well, what about the Spirit? Well, that's actually a good question to ask. Why 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 is that there? But then you have other you know places like the Gospel of John. There's just so much rich uh, Trinitarian teaching to, to be studied there, and so uh, I think that's the place to start. But then um, the other thing I would say is some of the texts that we we might think of as too foreign to someone who has not been formally trained in theology, they're actually not completely inaccessible. So Athanasius on the Incarnation, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, Five Theological Orations. Uh, I think that the you know, thoughtful Christian can pick up these works and read them with great profit. Um, and, and I might mention in this regard, uh, RTS Orlando has a website called the Paideia Center for Whole Life Discipleship. And there are some reading guides related to certain classic texts that are helpful in, in this regard. So there's one on Gregory of Nazianzus' Five Theological Orations. So I would say get a copy of the Five Theological Orations, download the reading guide is written by Mike Allen, um, and begin study or, or you know ask the pastor to, to form a reading group. That's actually Typically, how the Paideia Center hmm. works has reading groups around these texts. But then there, there are contemporary works that um, one can pick up. I, my book uh, that you mentioned earlier is written to, to help the kind of thoughtful lay reader, but Brad Sanders has a book called The Deep Things of God. Um, and there are many other books like that where the interested lay person, I think, can gain a deeper understanding of this great doctrine. That's great. I mean, I think the, the Paideia Center is helpful in uh, even just, and I, this was great when I went to seminary, where you're kind of like a little intimidated by these old texts. You're just kind of like, man, I need to know like Latin and all these things. Right. And one, I found out these are actually more readable than I thought. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it just takes a little more patience than like we're talking before than maybe we're used to. But uh, I found that when I sat down and just kind of patiently tried to make to understand it, you realize they're talking with a lot of yeah. clarity. Yeah, C.S. Lewis says that, you know, oftentimes these ancient texts are more readable than the books written about these ancient texts. Mm. And I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, it speaks to their their enduring nature. Uh, Dr. Swain, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, again, I'm going to put in the show notes a link to the conference that he spoke at our church, uh, as well as to his book. And then we'll put in a link for the... Uh, Paideia Center as well, but appreciate your work and thank you for, for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me.